So May. Yeah. I was thinking that what we should do today is sit down and just brainstorm in our imaginations an idea for a device that can't be built for another hundred years because it's not physically possible yet. Oh, you mean like uh, Charles Babbage and Ada Lovelace? Yeah. Cool. All right, let's do it. Hello and welcome to Science Brunch. I'm Mae Prince and I'm here with my friend Katie McKissick, creator of Beatrice the Biologist. Hi, everyone. And today we're going to be talking about the woman known as Ada Lovelace. But before we get to Ada... Yeah, before we get to Ada and and Ada Lovelace Day, um, I have something very important, actually. So, you know how Finding Dory is coming out? No, but go on. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, Finding Nemo came out something like 13 years ago, which sounds like... It seems like it was so much more recent than that in my head. But when I really do think about where I was when Finding Nemo came out, yes, it was quite a while ago. So the sequel, Finding Dory, is coming out uh, this summer. And some people are worried that there will be a rush on, you know, aquarium and, you know, pet stores to get a Dory for yourself. Ah. Because there was quite a few people that wanted to have a Nemo. They wanted to have a clownfish. What happens every time a movie comes out with a cute animal? Totally. And sometimes they're not the best pets. I mean, people wanted Dalmatians when the live action 100 when Dalmatians came out. Dalmatians are not not really good dogs yeah they're high strung yeah they they don't do well with different you know temperatures you know they the only dog i've ever actually had growl at me that truly terrified me was a dalmatian <laughs> <laughs> not that that is really meaningful but as so, much less 101 of them <laughs> i know um but anyway and and i also know because i used to have a guinea pig that when a movie called g-force came out Mm, I don't know how that long ago that was. Vaguely familiar, yeah. Yeah, it was um, CGI or something. Yeah, there yeah. were CGI guinea pigs in an otherwise, you know, live action movie, and they were like secret agents of some sort. I never actually saw it. Makes but, sense. But yeah, but they're very cute, and so people really wanted to have guinea pigs afterwards. And I think guinea pigs might be the worst situation um, for like an impulse purchase that winds up being a lot more work because in terms of mm. how much they cost, a guinea pig if you go to a pet store is like 30 bucks or something mm. whereas at, at least dogs and cats they're more ex- they're, they're more money if you're adopting or or, or purchasing them which you shouldn't right. do <laughs> but so you think about it a little bit more i feel like guinea pigs the they're really off balance in terms of how easy they are to acquire and how much work they take to yeah, and to hamsters keep. right yeah and, and i had a guinea pig and i i got it at pet store because i didn't realize that there actually were guinea pigs in shelters and that's what we should have done really but yeah because when people saw g-force they're like i want a guinea pig so they went to the pet store where they always have guinea pigs people bought them took them home and then were like oh my god they take so much work i thought it was going to be like having a you know yeah having yeah. like a goldfish or something you just yeah. put it in a cage and just ignore it um, so yeah, they shelters were just flooded with guinea pigs. Yes. We'd already had our guinea pig for a while. Otherwise, I probably would have, you know, been like, oh, we need to go rescue one. Um, so why are guinea pigs so much work? Well, so I had I had a guinea pig. He lived to be six years old. The thing is that they are very social. So if mm. you, I think that they're just. I mean, mine in particular was very wouldn't eat if you weren't giving him enough attention so and i say like when we were traveling Mm -hmm. i would have a friend come over and i would have to say please could you like watch a movie or sit down and just watch a tv show or something because you know if he's if that's his only interaction for like the weekend that we're gone he won't eat and he won't drink water because they get so lonely they don't they don't want to be left alone and you have to change their bedding a lot of the time because Uh and if you don't they'll get sick because Mm -hmm. you know they 
you can kind of litter train them to go in one corner or something so that you, there is not as much to change. But other than that, they're just kind of they're just kind of peeing and they have their like little pellet poops and they just kind of just kind of go. And so, yeah, if it gets really filthy, then they can get urinary tract infections. They yeah. can get all kinds of infections if they're just left in, in their filth. And the bedding is really expensive. Mm. Their food's relatively expensive. They need lots of hay. To be and things to chew on so they can keep their teeth ground down. They have a, a fair number of needs. I mean, in terms of, they're they're very similar almost to dogs. I mean, they don't need to be walked or anything. Yeah. I mean, they're they're I mean, not quite could. there. But in terms of the stuff you have to keep in mind, you mm-hmm. can't just. It's not just something like a fish tank where it's like, oh, just make sure you tap some food in there and then go about your day. That's not the situation with guinea pigs. Yeah. And I think maybe because they're kept, they are kept in a cage. People are like, oh, they must be so low maintenance because mm-hmm. they're not roaming around your house. Um, you know, whatever they're corralled, but it's not, it does not mean that they don't need lots of attention and things that are expensive and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, we took our guinea pig to the vet and like, you know, when he got (laughs) sick, I mean, you know, we took really good care of him. So anyway, they're worried that there will be a similar situation when people see Finding Dory. Mm. And I don't know the plot of the movie, but I think it does involve Dory, probably like Finding Nemo being in someone's personal tank or something. I'm not sure. I haven't seen it. I don't don't know. But but they're worried because here's the thing about blue tangs, Mm. Dory, Dory fish, is that A, they get really, really big. They get to be about a foot long. So picture a dinner plate. That's how big that they get. Because you and when you buy them, they'll be just yeah. a couple inches long, but they get humongous. So if you really want to have one, you need to get a tank the size of a couch so that it can actually hold that fish yeah. when it gets to Which be full grown. Which is thousands of dollars. Yeah. yeah. And it's a salt, you know, they live in the ocean, so yeah. it has to be a saltwater tank, which hopefully, I just hope to God, discourages people right off the bat because mm-hmm. that is so much upkeep. Oh my gosh, you have to be so on top of that stuff. Um, but that's not the least. So we're going, we're going in increasing issues here. <laughs> so they get really big. They live a long time. How long? When you, when I looked up on some aquarium sites, they say it's five plus years, eight plus years, whatever. I saw other sources like Humane Society or biologists were saying they can live for decades. Oh my God. Decades. Do you want a 40 year fish? No. That's a huge responsibility. And you like, so please do not do that. But that's not even the worst thing. The worst thing (laughs) is that they are not bred in captivity. So if you go to a pet store and there is a blue tang, that is straight up from the ocean. Someone straight captured up, it. Straight up Finding Nemo it. style. Someone went to a coral reef and captured it and brought it to a pet store and sold it so that the pet store can sell it to you. It was like clownfish at least. Nemo's. Uh-huh. <laughs> Nemo's can be bred in captivity. So if you buy a clownfish, you're probably buying a fish that was born, you know, at that, maybe not that pet store, but an aquarium facility where they breed them. Right. But they, I don't know all the details why, something about how the baby blue tangs don't eat fish food. That's, you know, the easy stuff to give them. So mm-hmm. they just, the, the babies just don't do well. They, the longest, mm-hmm. you know, they live. So it's just easier to capture them in the yeah. wild. Yeah. And of course, you can imagine that's probably not in the most sustainable yeah. or friendly way. I mean, one of the ways that they startle them long enough to capture them is with cyanide. That's great oh. for coral reefs. They already have enough to deal with. They They're do. all getting bleached. The, 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 yes. you know, coral reefs have it hard enough. So so here's the deal. Don't get a blue tang. Just don't. Just don't. I'm going to do a comic about this. I'm going to make it kind of my summer thing. It's like, you don't need one of these. Don't get a 
don't just don't get a pet of any kind. <laughs> with, with, no, no, I'm serious. No, I mean, because of a movie for sure. Because of a movie for sure. And you know, everyone has these urges. Like when you see a cute puppy or a cute kitten or whatever, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you want one. But you have to look past that want to like. Can I actually care for this thing for the next 15, 20, right. 40 years? Right. I mean, parrots, they live forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, people have to leave them to their descendants and their will mm-hmm. because they live for so long. Yeah, some of them can live for 80 years. And they take a lot of attention and a lot. So, yeah, just think it through. Yeah, like, you don't want to neglect some poor animal or have the have a blue tang die that was you know taken from its home in the yeah. ocean. I mean, I, I think if you if you have the urge to get a dory fish, get a blue tang, watch Finding Nemo again. The whole story yes. is about how fish do not want to live in your aquarium. They want to be in the ocean. That's where they belong. They don't want to be there for you. I'm sorry. Don't so, impulse buy a living thing. For sure. Impulse buy a candy bar. Yeah. At exactly. least you're only harming yourself. Exactly. <laughs> it was funny when Finding Nemo did come out. Um, I was in a pet store. Oddly, I don't know why I would have been a pet store, but whatever, with a friend of mine. And there was a blue tang in one of the aquaria, mm. aquaria, aquariums. Uh, I've heard aquariums. Octopuses? Octopus. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so there was a blue tang and they're, they're really pretty fish. It was very small. And I said, oh, what a pretty blue tang. Oh, I want a blue tang. Like not actually in any way <laughs> suggesting I was really going to do that, but just, yeah. oh, it's so pretty. You know, that's, that's great. So, but I said, I uttered the words, oh, I want a dory. Oh, so cute. And my friend was like, I think you need to rewatch the movie. I think you really missed um, the, the basic thesis of that movie. Did you did you watch it with your eyes? <laughs> they, tr- they risked their lives to escape from the jail that you want to put them in. Yeah. And after talking about Inky, the octopus. Yeah. We yeah. Just, just leave the fish in the yeah. ocean. Yeah. That's where they want to be. Yeah. I mean... What are what are you doing? Yeah, so that's that's my story. Don't get a dory and tell other people. Tell if you know someone who really makes impulse purchases, and maybe is thinking about getting into an aquarium, tell them not to get a dory because yeah, that is not what they need. Get, and don't let them ricochet off and get some no, other animal. No, no, yeah, don't do it. They they're not bred in captivity. They are they are kidnapped. Get a plant. Yes. <laughs> Be like the professional. Get a get a plushie. <laughs> Just, get a Just get get a stuffed animal. <laughs> it's more sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. Just take your friend's dog for a walk. Exactly. Exactly. Just stop. Just just dog sit or foster foster yes. a dog. Yes. Foster a cat. Yes. All right. Well. Oh, but you were a good guinea pig herd. Yeah. <laughs> I get what I one time. Um, he had to get an x-ray because he had a little bit of, uh, of blood in his, in his urine. Mm-hmm. And so they did an x-ray to see what was going on. He had some kidney stones. And so they did very tiny guinea surgery to remove those. <laughs> uh, was, and he came back. He was like, what just happened? <laughs> um, but anyway, so long time ago on, um, Symbiotic, the scientific American blog that I contribute to, mm-hmm. I was looking at that x-ray of him. And I asked just on Twitter, oh, does anyone else, you know, keep their x-rays of their pets if you ever, you know, get one? And so I got a, you know, a ferret and a dog and a cat and all these just beautiful x-rays. And I, th- I think they're just so gorgeous. Like whenever I get an x-ray or, or you know, my pet or whatever, yeah. I always ask if I can get a picture of them because I just think they look so cool. So anyway, I did this, this post with all these x-rays. And I explained why I got the x-ray of my guinea pig, Ziggy, mm-hmm. saying that he had this this bladder problem, and that's why they did an x-ray. And one of the comments was, oh, you you know, you know, took your guinea pig to the vet, and you even got him this tiny guinea surgery, which was 
$200 if we're not talking yeah. like it was in, it's insane thing. Um, and it was someone who specialized in guinea pigs we luckily found. But at this, oh, you stole money from deserving people to get your guinea pig veterinary care. Keep like, how, how dare you? Yeah. And, that's so, and I'm like, being a responsible pet owner is now <laughs> some really silly use of money. I'm, I'm, you lost me. I don't understand what's happening. Yeah. But I mean, it's the same argument. It's like, where are we going to space when people are starving? It's like, listen, guys, <laughs> there are multiple things going on no, here. No, <laughs> can't we? We can't just take, you know, yeah. Yeah. It's, well. But Ada, speaking of going to space and using computers... Yes. I want to hear about Ada because I have seen her her picture and I know about Ada Lovelace Day and I know something about an algorithm that she did, but I am absolutely totally confused about <laughs> how she did that so long ago. So I am really excited to understand that, more about what's going that on. That is a legitimate question <laughs> because she's credited as the first computer programmer. Yes, correct. Way this. before computers yeah. were a thing, yeah. right? I feel so like it's out of order. That's what's confusing. Yes. <laughs> it, it does sound, it is, it is. And honestly, when I, when I started researching, I knew there was Ada Lovelace Day. I knew that it was like a celebration of women in STEM and mm-hmm. whatever. Um, I didn't know much else about her. She was born in 1815, December 10th in London, England. And her name is not actually Ada Lovelace. Oh my gosh. Is that her monk name? <laughs> she's a monk. No, she's not a monk. She was born Augusta Ada Byron. Oh, okay. I'll explain how she gets her name yeah, later. Yeah, please do. Um, I'm already confused. Her mother's name was Annabella, and her father was Lord Byron. Okay, I've and heard this And if he sounds name. familiar, yes. it's because he was a very famous poet, you know, in the Romanticism, you know, whatever, whatever. He was a bad boy. Oh. He had many, many lovers and caused a lot of trouble, and he was very temperamental. And so he had a lot of lovers and one lovelace. <laughs> and one lovelace. Yeah, so um, Ada Lovelace, I'm going to call her Ada, uh, she was actually his only legitimate child. Uh-huh. Yes, so she was born, and a month later, he left the country never to return. Oh, and okay. died in Greece what? eight years later. Okay. So it's so an eccentric dad. Yeah. <laughs> he was uh, an absentee father. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't, you know, he left the country for another woman, basically. Okay. And he separated from Annabella. But, you know, divorce laws back then, separation laws were not so great. So... Uh, her mother seemed to live in fear the entire time that he would end up with custody of Ada. Oh. And so um, her she's often portrayed as kind of a monstrous mother and someone who didn't really love her daughter that much. And uh, I read some accounts that said this may be because at the time there was a lot of pro-Byron propaganda oh, because my. he was a famous poet. And she Ew. wasn't really able to tell her own side of the story because anything she said could be twisted in a court of law. And if he really wanted to, he could have taken custody of the kid. And that was the last thing she wanted. Um, My face right now looks yes. very wide-eyed yes. and confused well, and horrified. a lot of people think that Lord Byron um, had bipolar disorder oh. and that maybe... I love uh, diagnosing people after the fact, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> like, I know, I know. Well, I mean, and I'm, I'm not kidding. I truly find it interesting. We're like, well, they said this, this, and this about them that kind of sounds like schizophrenia exactly (laughs) they look at the symptoms that people record in letters or Mm -hmm. whatever and then try to deduce what they may have had yeah so they think that he was probably bipolar Mm. and that ada herself may have been bipolar 
uh, because that kind of condition can be passed down um, for sure through families. Is that something that we, we like informed how she did things later? Or is it just that they think that she, she might refers have... to kind of, um, you know, a certain amount of madness might not be the right okay, word, gotcha. but so uh, being mania, manic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Was, does that help her do her work? Maybe I think so. Because I, I think, think it, it also like that. can be exhausting for sure. You know, because when you're in, in a manic phase, yeah. you just can't stop, and your right. body becomes run down. And she was not in the greatest of health. Mm. Um, you know, this seems to be kind of a common trend among the people that were studying. <laughs> I know. Um, oh my god! But yeah, she wasn't a super uh, hardy gal. Um, so that may have contributed to, you know, her having episodes and then being exhausted. Well, she probably was also wearing a corset, so that can't have helped. That never helped, (laughs) basically. But yeah, so her mother was also an amateur uh, mathematician, and she wanted to avoid raising her daughter to take over her father in any way. She didn't want her, like, doing poetry or anything abstract, and so she really made sure to get her tutoring in math and science. Awesome. I know, right? What? <laughs> I mean, she was like, we are going to beat the poetry out of you. <laughs> no, not beat, but don't be like your dad at all. Yeah, so she um, she got a lot of good tutoring because, you know, they were a fairly wealthy family, and at that time, women could not go to universities. And so the only way that they could really get education was to have private tutors. Let's bring so, the university to you. <laughs> exactly, which is pretty sweet if you can afford it. Yeah. Um, so she, she was tutored in math and science for a long time and she also uh, when she was a teenager became fascinated with machines and how to design a flying machine to the point where she was looking at bird's wings and trying to figure out exactly how she would do it mechanically so she always kind of had an eye for that kind of thing so one of her tutors was Mary Somerville who was a Scottish astronomer and mathematician and uh, Mary Somerville knew like a lot of other kind of big minds at the time Since she was a woman, again, you know, she never really did any original research that was kind of not done back then. But what she did was translate other people's men's research into English or, you know, from other languages that she knew. And then those were often republished in journals of that language to kind of disseminate the knowledge throughout the world. That's That's how they did it back then. So she was like a science translator. Basically. (laughs) Literally. Yeah. She was a science translator. And uh, she introduced Ada to um, this guy called Charles Babbage. Another name I've heard. Another Mm. name you've heard, yes, because he is known as the inventor of the computer, basically. Um, So Charles was an interesting guy. He was very... uh... (laughs) I can't wait for what's about to come. (laughs) How can I put this? He was excited about his work. Okay. And he didn't understand why other people weren't as excited about it as he was. (laughs) And he resented them for it a lot of the time. Uh, He didn't understand why the government wouldn't fund his work. And most of it was because, you know, he's kind of a jerk. Like, I mean... He was he was a rich guy. He spent all of his time trying to develop these these machines that he was designing, but he never really thought that he got the recognition that he deserved. So when she was uh, when she was like seventeen or eighteen, she met him for the first time, and she at the time he was developing uh, what he was calling the difference engine, which is basically a calculator. 
and it was able to do calculations. So for example, it could square numbers, like it would go from, you know, square two, you get four, you square three, you get nine, you square four, you get 16, on and on and on. And his whole point to doing this was that, you know, this was kind of leading up into the industrial age and calculations were used for everything. And at the time, the only way that they could do these calculations is to have actual human beings do them. And those people were called computers. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah. And um, and they would, you know, be performing all these calculations and then make these huge tables, these huge published tables of calculations that people could refer to without having to do the calculations themselves. Okay, gotcha. And this was used in industry and navigation. And it was a problem for navigation because if the calculations are wrong, you're just going to crash right. into the coast. Well, there's which, probably pretty unwieldy pieces of paper that have yeah, all of exactly. this table Yeah, exactly. It's huge volumes. Yeah. And there were mistakes in them, you know, because obviously they're being, they're being made by humans. And so his idea was, well, why don't we make a machine to do it all perfectly and then print it out? And then we never have to worry about a ship crashing into, <laughs> into the coast because of a human calculation error. I'm just thinking now about like like map errors where it's like like on like Google Maps where it's like, oh, it's saying to, to do this. Oh, yeah. there's a slight error. Well, maybe we shouldn't listen to yeah, it. Yeah, it's like Michael Scott, like <laughs> drive directly into the lake. I'm picturing someone like on a ship with this like big scroll of all these calculations. It's like, it should be over there. And they're like, it's a rock. It's like, no, my calculations say it's not. And then like just smash into the rock. Yeah, exactly. These are the kind of scenarios we're trying to avoid people. Mm -hmm. um, so he had built uh, part of the machine. He actually never built the entire machine. He designed it, but he never built the whole thing because it was enormous oh. it was only ever the the first completed machine of the, the difference engine was made in 2000 and it's what? in a museum in london yeah what and it actually works oh my gosh yeah so anyway so but he had a part of it that kind of worked and it had a bunch of gears and you know they turned whatever ada saw that and immediately like mind blown like she saw that piece of machinery and her imagination basically went wild um and it was because he was using it to, uh, you know, develop calculations and just calculate numbers. And she took it a step further later, a couple years later. So Charles Babbage had developed this difference engine. Partway through designing that, trying to get funding for that, he got distracted by this other idea that he had, <laughs> which was called the analytical engine. Oh, okay. Which is the thing I think that people most often refer to in terms of the computer. Right. But they get the things confused. And even at the time, in letters and, you know, the articles you see written about this, they confuse the difference in the analytical engine. So when we're talking about the computer, it's the analytical engine. So he needed to have better names for them. He did. He, he didn't wasn't have, good at branding. He didn't have a real catchy buzzword, you know? Um, anyway, so we'll take a short break because she she met him when she was 17, 18. She got married at 19 to a 30-year-old guy named William King, and he later became the Earl of Lovelace. Ah. And so okay, she became the Countess of Lovelace. Gotcha. So really, she's Ada, the Countess of Lovelace. We shorten it to Ada Lovelace. And um, she published under her initials AAL. Oh, so okay. that's kind of why, you know, it makes sense that we call her Ada Lovelace. It's just not the name that she was born with or her given name. She had three kids in a series of like three or four years. Oh, boom. Boom. Um, oh, boom, boom, boom. And she suffered health problems because she caught cholera. Uh. And uh, she, was giving, uh, she was given laudanum and opium. And people said that that changed her personality to a certain extent because, you know, she was also trying to like manage all her health problems and drinking and all this kind of thing, you know. What are you going to do in the 1800s yeah, when you don't really have the yeah. best medical care? Yikes. Um, 
but in 1841, she started working on mathematics again, and uh, she, like, hooked up with another tutor, and she's getting, you know, she's corresponding with him and learning more. And she connects back up with Babbage, and at this point, he's working on his analytical engine. And he takes her on as kind of an assistant or a colleague because she finds uh, an article that's written in French that's about his analytical engine, and she translates it so that it can be published in the English-speaking world. And he sees this translation, and he realizes she has a really deep understanding of the, of the machine. And he's like, all right, well, why don't you add your own thoughts to it? And like, you know, beef it up a bit, because it was a pretty short paper. And so she does. And <laughs> she adds, her, her footnotes are two and a half times longer than the actual length of the paper. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and what he had always thought of was um, how to calculate and do perform calculations with numbers and what she came up with was well anything is possible you don't have to just limit it to numbers you could make numbers symbolize something else like letters or music or anything and then the computer could calculate whatever you wanted it to it's limitless it's not just limited to the world of numbers Babbage had not thought of that he was so obsessed with building the machine itself and figuring out how to make that work. He hadn't really thought of the software side. Mm -hmm. So in these notes, she writes down a lot of these ideas. She explains that it can be used for symbols, not just numbers. And it publishes. And because she's the first one to publish these ideas, she's credited as the first computer programmer. That is so cool. It is so cool. Oh, my God. Um, and Babbage had other, he had some assistants who had also, like, kind of written down ideas for software or whatever, but they never published. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or they didn't publish first, so they don't get that credit. So, Ada, way to go. Dude. She didn't write her own, because, you know, he was like, why don't you just write your own paper on this? And she was like, oh, that never occurred to me. Well, I'll just write these notes. I so, just, well, right now I'm just kind of taken aback because... It's just so amazing that they found each other in the way that they did. And then yeah. he was like, hey, why don't you do this? And she was like, oh, okay, I was thinking. About it. Just the way that it all lined up, that's just, it's crazy to me. Yeah. Like, what if... And they all mixed with the, this this crazy crowd of, you know, like Faraday and Charles Dickens. And, like, they knew all these people in the same circles. Man. And, yeah, so it must have been... I mean, it's a small world now in terms of, you know, scientific communities, but back then, it was really small. Well, it's funny. I just started reading this book called The Geography of Genius that goes through these kind of hot beds of all these ideas and yeah. what made that happen, you know, you know, like like Silicon Valley now versus like ancient Greece. And, and it just it sounds like one of those other things. It was just like, oh, they were all there and they all were talking to each other and all this great stuff happened. Yeah. So just a brief explanation of the actual analytical engine, because you're thinking to yourself, how did he build a computer yeah, in not the visualizing 1800s this very effectively? Well, first of all, it was like the size of a locomotive. Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wait. I mean, it was huge, huge. What? Because, you know, it's all metal parts. There's, you know, and, and he conceived of, you know, all the different parts that we have in a computer today, which is storage the store he called it which is memory the mill is you know to perform the calculations and you know all these different parts like he had all of the concepts there he was just kind of limited by the materials that he had available Mm -hmm. so he just like designed it all with these huge gears you know it's like steampunk computer for sure of course he never was able to build it 
But the precursor, just to give some context, is uh, people use the abacus to make calculations. You know, that was like 2000 BC. In the 1500s, the one guy invented the pedometer. And then in the 1640s, uh, Pascal invented the mechanical calculator, which it was actually like, you know, the size of one or two shoeboxes. And you could use it to perform some calculations, like very simple ones. Mm-hmm. So up until the mid-1800s, like this kind of thing was just unheard of. He studied looms, you know, the machines used to weave fabrics to get kind of how the computer, how his analytical engine would work. And the way that looms operated was they were fed punch cards, which would dictate the pattern of how the different threads were lifted or Whoa. yeah, or moved to create a certain like weave pre-designed pattern. Yeah. Exactly. And so if that sounds familiar, that's because the first computers in the 20th century used punch cards yeah like if you if your parents are a little bit older your grandparents they remember computer programs that used punch cards in a computer the size of a room Mm -hmm. so that's basically what he's describing in the mid-1800s a computer the size of a room where you fed punch cards into was he a time traveler i just don't understand i know (laughs) and the fact that this only ever existed on paper and ada was able to look at what he had on paper and say, oh, well, this is what it will be used for. And it hadn't even been built. Like, this is all in theory. And so, yeah, she's writing out programs, basically, for this analytical engine that he had only designed and, you know, saying, well, then also it could could make music. Oh, my God. Wait, so the difference engine was made in 2000. Or with the analytical one made in 2000? No, not the analytical one, the difference one, which is simpler. So the analytical one, it was never built, ever? It's never been built. The thing with the analytical engine, so the the, the difference engine is basically a calculator. Like you put in mm-hmm. the numbers on punch cards that you want calculated in the way that you want them calculated, you know, and then you turn the knob and then something pops out in the other end. <laughs> like a crank? <laughs> yes, exactly. Hey, it's hey, a crank. Hey. There are videos online. We'll tweet Here's them. You can see. It's fascinating to watch. Um, but the uh, the analytical engine was different because, as you know, like computers have to perform like and or operations mm-hmm. and they kind of loop what you want them to do. So you feed something in and it's like, if this, then this, then this. And then the computer knows by the kind of operation that you're asking it to do, whether or not it needs to run it back through that same operation or do something else with it. So it's kind of like a looped system. And it was called how to make the engine eat its own tail. Ah. Yeah. So how do you make it do that kind of looping thing? Um, And that's what Babbage was focused on. And Ada just assumed like, okay, if that's possible, this is what you could get out of it. So super interesting and amazing. So she did all of this within a couple years. Like they published this article, I think, in 1843. And um, she died in 1852. Oh. And again, like the uh, the backward-looking diagnosis is that it was uterine cancer. She died really young. Babbage, you know, lived, you know, a couple more decades. He died kind of an old man. He never got the funding or whatever he needed to build the analytical engine. But letters and, you know, surviving documentation uh, indicates that he was extremely fond of her that he was amazed by her mind. He referred to her as the enchantress of numbers and uh, kind of basically his math fairy. Um, And I think he recognized that 
she added what he was missing, you know? So they complimented each other. Mm-hmm. He did hardware. She did software. Yeah, it's just so crazy that yeah. they met. I just, yeah. I was, I'm not over it yet. That's just, oh my God. And together, I mean, if they if they had had, you know, the ability to have like, you know, silicon chips or transistors or whatever, they could have built a computer. I mean, they basically, they did. They built a computer on paper and she wrote a program for a computer that didn't exist, oh which is just crazy. But it's so awesome. And in recognition of her contribution to computer science, the U.S. Department of Defense actually named the computer language ADA after oh. her in 1980. And her it was because her research was basically rediscovered in the 1950s. It was uh, B.Y. Bowden and Faster Than Thought, a symposium on digital computing machines, uh, published in 1953. He kind of like looked at her notes and re- resurrected it. Because again, it was just footnotes on someone else's paper that added like a whole new dimension. Right. So people probably didn't really know. And again, because it's so theoretical, it's like theory based on theory. Exactly. People probably were like, what? And just kind of went about with their day, right? Or were they known for this at the time? Did you read anything about about if people they, really people appreciated knew, it? They didn't. Well, here's the thing. It seemed kind of cool, like the little working bit that he had. But no one understood what he was doing or what mm-hmm. he was too like, abstract. It was I, I too assume, abstract. Yeah. And they didn't really, I mean, if they weren't mathematicians, they didn't really understand the calculations he was trying to do. And then, you know, out of nowhere, this this young lady comes along and she has a background in math and an interest in machines. And it kind of immediately clicks for her. Like she sees a tiny part of what he's talking about. And all of a sudden she's like, I know what to do with what you're trying to, it's just crazy. I mean, the two minds that needed to meet met. Yeah. It didn't go anywhere, basically. What if they hadn't? Oh, God, I just like, ah! But I mean, people kind of redeveloped this later. Mm-hmm. I, I think, uh, like, Alan Turing, I think, read her paper, but he was kind of onto the same thing just, you know, 100 years later, and he ended up developing the code-breaking machine that was used in World War II. So they kind of developed it in a bubble, and it's kind of a bubble in history like they are the ultimate in being before your time yes like where exactly you have all these ideas but it's physically not possible to do them because other things haven't caught up to you yet exactly that's got to be the best example and then later 100 years later someone basically reinvented the wheel Mm -hmm. you know the wheel that had been kind of lost in this bubble of history but it's just super impressive to see what they're capable of doing i mean this is kind of what einstein did with gravitational waves he right, just like all in, in your his imagination head, yeah yeah and he's like all right well then if this is correct and then all of these calculations will follow and a hundred years later we're like oh yeah totally <laughs> totally right <laughs> thanks <Yeah>. einstein <laughs> yeah so i don't know it was it was super fun to read about her and uh I also learned the origin of one of my favorite phrases. What? Which was not what I was expecting. What? Okay, so balls out. Uh-huh. <laughs> You've heard this expression I'm, I'm like used. I'm glancing around like, um, what are we Probably doing? Probably by me. <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> okay, because, because when you hear this phrase, what do you think the origin is? Let's just all like take a second and think. <laughs> Use your what? imagination. Use your imagination, children. What do you think is the origin of this phrase, right? It probably involves running right. and short shorts. Like, that's kind of what, what my mind, which is hilarious to me, which is why I use it, yeah. right? That's not the case. So I, I, in reading up on Lovelace, I read The Thrilling Adventures of Lovelace and Babbage by Sidney Padua. It's this graphic novel. 
it's appropriately like <laughs> two-thirds footnote <laughs> which is all like the historical facts and she made this comic about them she did it because she didn't like the way their story ended it was kind of never went anywhere she, you know Lovelace died really young so she made kind of these fantastical tales about what they could have accomplished gotcha. if they you know if people had no understood what they were doing whatever anyway in this book is where I found out the true origin of balls out. I'm dying. I'm dying here. <laughs> so in so so okay, so the analytical engine would have been run by steam. Okay. Because that was the mechanism of that time period, yeah, right? That was the power. Like a steam engine. Mm-hmm. It would have run all the gears and everything. So when a steam engine is going, you know, you had to like fuel it. You had to fuel the fire that created the steam, like boil the water created the steam. And this was very uneven, you know, because you're throwing a log in, you're throwing some coal in, and you've got this, like, burst of energy. And then it dies down. And then it dies down. So to keep the engine moving on an even keel as opposed to going, like, you know, they made a throttle so that if the engine was running too hot and creating too much steam, it would kind of tamp that down and even it out, right? So the, they created this little mechanism. It's called a centrifugal governor, which is like the best name ever. <laughs> and if you look at a picture of a steam engine, I know that you've seen this. You, you'll recognize it if you look at it. Um, it's created by these like two or three balls that spin around oh, on a pivot, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that thing actually moves up and down. So the balls with centrifugal force move outward or inward depending on the amount of steam coming out so when there's too much steam coming out it spins them really fast and that in turn brings the top of it down to kind of tamp down the amount of steam to 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 throttle the engine to kind of throttle means strangle right? right so it means to kind of push down the energy and bring it back into line and then as the steam becomes less, the less amount of steam that comes out, the balls drop back down. So the faster you're going, the more energy you have, balls out. <laughs> Which I was super excited to yeah. learn about, but also kind of disappointed because <laughs> the image in my head just cannot be matched. Like, just like it was to me, it was always this ridiculous, like, I don't know. I just imagine this guy like running Going down the street anyway. But yeah, that's 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 the possibly the best thing I learned in all of that this. That is pretty awesome. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Balls out. Yeah. We, whenever you can learn about balls, it's always a good time. It's it sounds like the the source of that uh pulling out all the stops. Because mm-hmm. isn't that for organs where there would be stops like like actually on top of some of the the really tall pipes or the organ that the, makes the organs, sense. And they're like, we want this to be really loud, so pull out all the stops. Yeah. And just make it like shake the building. <laughs> and that's not what I would imagine that's not what I imagine either when yeah. I hear pull out all the stops. All the stop signs. <laughs> pull out all the stop signs. <laughs> just just go for it. <laughs> I cannot wait to have Ada over for lunch. I mean, oh my God. <laughs> what is this show called? I can't wait to have her over for brunch, knowing all this. Yeah. She sounds so awesome. Although, she might not even want to talk to us because she's too cool for us. She is too cool, but also, it, in in reading about her and her relationship with Charles Babbage, it sounded like she was kind of his diplomat in a way. Mm. Like he was kind of kind of rough around the could edges. Could be terrible or... with people uh-huh. because he never held back what he was saying, and she was a you know a bit more diplomatic about it. 
and was able to kind of interact with the public on a level that he couldn't. So maybe if she had lived, he would have been more successful in getting some funding for his projects right? instead of stepping on everyone's toes and making a jerk of himself. Well, so we'll invite them both. We'll send some, you know, hand calligraphied, uh, you know, invitation yeah. and request an RSVP with a pre-posted, you know, envelope and such. And we'll just hope that they that they say yes, because it sounds like they're busy. They are kind of busy. <laughs> it was funny because... Like, like, we don't want to have brunch with you. We wanted to sit here in our minds. Well, there are samples of letters back and forth that they wrote to each other. Some of them very, like, brief, you know? But they were always trading math textbooks. And, like, there was one where they were going to meet up at, I think, her country estate. And he's like, wait, are you bringing this one math textbook? Bring it. Oh wait, God. do you have it? Do you have that other one? Okay, if you have that other one, then I'll bring this one. Oh it was just, my like, God. <laughs> the nerdiest coordination. They're having a nerd slumber party. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Math slumber party. <laughs> that was awesome. So, yeah, they, they can do math while we eat eggs. Yeah. <laughs> We'll just we'll just like eavesdrop on their conversations. That's probably we'll invite them to have brunch next to us, and so they can just talk to each other. Yeah. And we'll just sit there and listen. To and, it, that they're and if we could time travel back, yeah, we would take them a computer, be like, "Here you go, here you go." Have I mean, fun. they would just die of shock, probably. Yeah, because how could you not? It's so small. Look yeah, at- I wonder if Ada had been born, you know. If she was our age currently, mm-hmm. you know, if she'd be in Silicon Valley or if she'd be doing these really crazy, cool startups or if she'd, I don't know, because I feel like right now Silicon Valley is so just like caught up in like, oh, what's the next like social media thing? Like, yeah. just whatever. It's just everyone's trying to one up each other. I wonder if she would do something wildly different because yeah. I do feel like we're kind of starting to hem ourselves in. It's just like, oh, what's another way to share photos with well, your friends? That was one interesting thing that I noticed was that, you know, she was raised. She Her mother tried her best to keep her from any kind of poetry or abstract thought. And yet it was her ability to think abstractly that led her to developing the computer, which we think of as a very technical device. And it is. But getting to that point, creating that machine, someone had to think, we don't just have to use this with numbers. We can do anything with it. That's amazing. Well, I love that her mom did do that because, yeah, she very well may have just wanted to channel all of this into poetry. Yeah. Because she sounds like she's someone who, yeah, thinks about symbols, thinks about things differently, and could probably have had a wonderful career as a poet. No, yeah, we, should invite, not... we should invite her mom to brunch, too. Yeah, Annabella, there's, come there's on nothing over. wrong with poetry. Like, that would, that would probably yeah. would have been a very fulfilling life for her. But instead, it was like, take your poetry brain and come on over here and yeah. apply that to all this math and see it differently. Ah, I love it so I much. I know. It just made me think we need more poets in math and, uh, and vice versa, probably. No, totally. Just to mix things up. You yeah. never know what you're going to get. Yeah. I mean, we got a computer in the 1850s. <laughs> That's crazy. Good job. <laughs> Good job, poetry and math. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Katie's doing the thumbs up. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Science Brunch brought to you by Ada Lovelace. Next time, we're going to be talking about Galileo and all the stuff you saw through a telescope. But in the meantime, please subscribe on iTunes, rate, review, all that good stuff. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook. We're at sciencebrunch.org. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.